Welcome, and thank you for listening today. This Caregiver Life podcast focuses on caregivers from all walks of life. Throughout the episode, we will hear from caregivers on the front line, those who do the day-to-day, sometimes hour-to-hour caregiving. We will also hear from care recipients, professionals in the field of caregiving, and other various topics of interest to those living this caregiver life. Good morning, Mayor. Morning, Jen. How's life? Oh, it's been busy. Very busy around here. Your caregiver life is off the hook right now. I know. It's incredible. Just when you think you have it all together, it falls apart. Like before you know it. It's like a tornado that came through. A tornado. A sepsis tornado. A sepsis tornado. And so how apropos that February 10th to February 16th in 2019 is Sepsis Survivor Week. And now you have two people you're close to that are sepsis survivors. I do. So today we won't have be ourselves, which is pretty kind of cool, but not because it means that we're dealing with sepsis. So you are a survivor, and I now am a caregiver survivor. And so you're my BFF, and <laughs> uh, my husband is a survivor of sepsis. I contracted sepsis in 2016, uh, a little over two and a half years ago, and it hit me like it does everybody else who contracts sepsis, uh, like a brick wall. Like a like the thickest brick wall I ever hit in my life, um, and I was shocked to learn that two hundred and seventy thousand people die from sepsis every year. It's more than breast cancer, AIDS, and prostate cancer combined. Well, that's really incredible, and I I was also looking at um, sepsis.org has a great website lots of good information in there. And and one of the statistics that um, surprised me is that 1.4 million people survive sepsis every year. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. I think that doctors are more aware of diagnosing sepsis now and getting the right antibiotic treatment um, than they once were. And we can attribute a lot of what we know about sepsis to actually to battlefield medicine. Mm, that's pretty incredible. Um, and then I also read that um, people sometimes have amputations as a result of sepsis. It just damages your body so, so much that it some, sometimes parts of your body can never come back. So you did not suffer an amputation, thank God. Thank God, but I had some serious, serious uh, post-septic side effects, if you will. Uh, I definitely have post-sepsis syndrome. Um, You recognized a lot of that while I was going through it and did some research and gave me a lot of support uh, that I really needed because um, what happened to me was very shocking. And uh, maybe I'll just uh, tell the listeners what, what actually did happen. I came down with the flu 
and was working and had to fly a couple places. And I thought I was healthy enough to do that. I wasn't. And during my travel, I became extremely dehydrated, which is not um, uncommon when you have the flu. And also, as we've talked in our other podcast, travel is very, very dry, very dehydrating. And by the time I got back from my travel, I was so terribly sick. I passed a kidney stone. So I had this viral infection going on and it had gotten into my lungs and I was having trouble breathing. And then I had this bacterial infection because after passing the kidney stone, I had to develop a UTI, urinary infection, and everything started shutting down. I went to an emergency room and thank God I did. Um, I have a very close friend who uh, I work with that that was there and she communicated with the doctors and I noticed in my chart, I went back and looked and it said adult fevered altered mental state. I would have died had I not gotten to the emergency room. That's not an exaggeration. I had a collapsed lung. I needed uh, IV antibiotics. They put me in the infectious diseases ward because they didn't know what I had. And there I stayed. And I was physically unable to move other than blinking my eyes and maybe muttering a few words here and there uh, for two days straight. And then moving was uh, excruciatingly painful. Um, and that was part of my, my, uh, my side effects. The long-term effects that I had were chronic pain and, and fatigue. And I, and I did experience some cognitive fog. I feel like a lot of that is going away now. Um, but I do get tired more easily than a person, another person my age. So it's almost as though you, you know, you recovered, but you'll never quite be 100% what you were before you had sepsis. No, my liver was terribly damaged. Um, in fact, they did some tests. They, they thought maybe I had liver cancer. A lot of the tests come back. The blood work comes back when you have sepsis and they start thinking that you have cancer because your immune system is so depleted. Um, mm-hmm. I do want to make our listeners aware of what the four major symptoms, the four most common symptoms, and you can remember them just by remembering the word time. And that is temperature, infection, mental decline, and extremely ill. And I think you, you saw that firsthand a couple of weeks ago. I did. I so I saw that with Tom's not even it's not even a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> it's it's about ten days ago. Um I came home from food shopping. I walked in the door and Tom was sitting on the chair, his his normal chair that he sits on, and he was doubled over in pain. And he was um I I I could say he was crying, but I think that that's really not even a good description he was weeping like just just tears coming down flooding his face and um all cringed in and his major muscle groups were all in a spasm all contracting and because he has als um, i think those contractions were even more difficult for him than they would be for somebody without ALS. And I'm not minimizing what it would be for somebody without ALS. It's just really was really magnified for him. 
And I initially thought that he was having a heart attack. I wasn't, I wasn't really sure what was going on. Um, he didn't seem to be sick during the day. He felt a little tired and he had gone in to take a nap. Um, and I went out shopping and, uh, when I came back and he was, he was all crunched over like that. I wasn't even really sure what to do. I really thought it was an ALS moment, like mm -hmm. a really ALS moment because he had had surgery an umbilical hernia repaired in December. And I thought, Oh, this is it. He's really reacting to the surgery and this is the decline with ALS that, you know, we've always been thinking about that it was going to be a really bad moment for him. And so I tried to give him a warm bath because I thought that would relax his muscles. Um, and then again, I started thinking, is he having a heart attack? So I got him out of the bath, which was really amazing that I even managed to get him out of the bath. He weighs 240 pounds. So he's a big man. He's six foot one. I'm five foot four. Mm. Uh, I managed to get him out. I managed to dry him off. Well, I, I coaxed him back to our bed in the back toward the back of the house to get him to lie down, which he did. And then I called the paramedics and I was texting you. Yeah. Well. And I was so Thanks. frightened, but wanted to give you, you know, a support telling me I, I wanted to reinforce all of your instincts to get him emergency medical care and to let other people help like with your, your pets. And, um, I just wanted Tom to get out of pain. Yeah. And for us to start figuring out, you know, what's going on here so paramedics came and, uh, and he vomited big, I had a big bucket next to the bed. He vomited when they were there. And they took him in and I um, took some deep breaths because I knew he was going to be, he, he, was, he was in with people who were giving him care. The paramedics seemed well qualified. And once they left with them, um, I could take a few minutes to take a breath. And I think from a caregiver's perspective, um, if I could add that component, I think it's a smart thing to do because what you don't want to have to have that happen is to get to an emergency room and then think, oh, I didn't bring this and I didn't bring that, or not even get there, have a car accident on the way there. Yeah. Uh, you really have to put on that reasonable, rational thinking. And so, and a neighbor came over. I, I didn't even realize I had gone food shopping and I had opened the back of the, you know, the trunk of the car and um, I had only brought in one bag. I, I did. I forgot. I completely forgot that I had other bags that were in the car. So she came over after the ambulance left and, and said, what can I do? And I said, um, she said, can I empty the car with your food? And I said, sure. I would love that. You so did she, some three things really right. After you identified that he needed emergency assistance, you took a breath, you phoned a friend and you let someone close help and th those are important um things to do as a caregiver um and and even like at that moment you, you're not really responding as a caregiver i guess i mean i think you're just responding of to somebody you love who's in a crisis um and so yep we did all those things i don't i think i called my son he was on duty as a drill instructor at fort jackson um, about three hours away from us. I called my son and cried because it was yeah. very emotional at that moment. 
but he's the one I would call and cry to initially. Um, and, and my daughter next, because I needed to catch a breath because she's a lot like her dad and very emotional. And, um, I wanted to be able to deliver a good message to her, like an important, serious message, but not one where I, I could barely talk. So, right. Because she will, we know the people in our lives that need us to be a little bit strong and the people that, that are able to absorb all of our vulnerabilities. Yes. And so he, my son offered to call her, but, um, oh, God, I, what a beautiful I, man he is. Yeah, but I, I needed to call her. She needed to hear from me. And I I uh, would be appalled if if anybody texted me that one of my, somebody I loved was dying or was in a really terrible um, health situation or a car accident. So you, that's when you make a phone call, you know. I have to say, nobody called my son. I wasn't in the right mental state. Uh, my son's an adult. He was a... Um, in the, in the Marine Reserves at the time, and no one called him. He didn't know until um, probably three days later when I was lucid and able to answer my phone. Um, he called and I and started talking about something, and I said, honey, I'm in the hospital right now. I'm, I'm going to have to deal with this later. And didn't wasn't even thinking that he didn't know, and it was very devastating. And so we have an agreement now, like, I, I, the people in my life know that he needs to be called. He can handle it and he wants to handle it. And I think that's an important conversation to have with your adult children. Oh, agreed. 100%. And transparency is key. I, I think sugarcoating um, how, you know, sugarcoating the, that message doesn't serve anybody because you're only going to get to wherever you are and find out the devastating news. If it is devastating, um, or really news and, and then who knows how they're going to feel, you know, yeah. they're angry. They're angry. So I think it's an important conversation to have. I agree with you so much, you know, have that conversation ahead of time so that you know how they want that message delivered to them. I think it's fair to ask them that. And, um, I knew my kids wanted to hear, uh, the transparent message without hysteria. So it was, it was important that, I, I kept that to a minimum for them because there's always time for, you know, super hysteria later, you know, but yes. at the moment, everybody needs to be put into some kind of action. I needed my, I asked my other neighbor to, we have uh, two little dogs and I asked my neighbor to come over and let them out. What, when I went to the emergency room and then again, to let them out early in the morning and feed them. Um, and I asked my daughter not to travel to yeah. us Friday night because it was late at night and I wasn't sure what we were looking at. I will say this for three, maybe four days, I've lost a little track of time here, but three, three days at a minimum, I really didn't know from hour to hour what the next plan was going to be in terms of what was happening to him, what his diagnosis was. He wasn't diagnosed, like he didn't get into the hospital and they said, oh, you have sepsis. So that was not that way at all. We got into the emergency room on Friday night and it just happened to be my neighbors were across the street. So right now, so now that's three neighbors that are involved, right? One who came and put my food away, one who took the dogs out and my other neighbor across the street whose mom was in ICU. I want to move to your neighborhood. 
(laughs) (laughs) They met me in the uh, emergency department waiting area and they were really good advocates for me. So it was really great to have them. There was four of them because two sisters live in the same, in our community. Um, So they were there with their spouses and I was just me and Maddie, Tom's service dog. And it was really nice to have a little bit of a force around me um, to help me out. He even met me at my car. He saw me pull into the parking lot and met me at the car. Um, Poor Maddie, her vest was falling off. And it was, it was, uh, I, I was sort of a disheveled mess by the time I got there, as calm as I think I was. By the time I got there, I was, I was really really nervous about what, what we were looking at. So, so they helped me. I got into, finally got in the back. I really kind of had to fight my way to get back there to be with him. They wanted to do an assessment on him before I got there. And I said, no, you can't do that. I mean, he wasn't, he was like you are. He was not, um, of sound mind at that moment. Um, and, and besides he has other, you know, he has other issues that go on like his ALS and he has a cognitive impairment from a a long ago infection. So he would not remember timelines, medications he was on. And all of those things are really important when you're telling a story about sort of a medical mystery that you need help with. So, um, to being a strong advocate at that moment is really important. I wasn't rude, but I was really firm that I needed to be back there. So I get back there, they do all these tests, they find out he has a low white blood count, but he doesn't have a fever, he's got a lot of pain. His diaphragm was constricted. We could hardly hear what he was saying. We, I thought that was very ALS related. I don't think that it was now. I think it was sepsis related and gallbladder related, but we couldn't pull all that apart. It made for a very complicated diagnostic tree for the ER staff. And so they sent us home a few hours later. Um, and we'll fill in those pieces about you and Lisa in a second here. Um, they sent us home and said if he had a fever, that we should come back, a fever of 100.3. Mm-hmm. And so you and Lisa, Kalala, were prepared. You contacted Lisa. I'm not really sure how all that goes. So <laughs> there was a. There were a lot of people, you, you do a good job of saying, look, I'm going through something and it's helpful because you and I both have uh, a strong faith and raising the flag with the people that you know have strong faith uh, gives you prayer and support, whatever that faith may be. And, And so you did that. And then our mutual friends were reaching out to me. What should I do? Should I go? Do you think Mary would want me to go? And I said, I think Mary needs something to eat because I had been talking to you at the grocery store. I knew you were going through all of uh, the emergency and, and the, and I'm just picturing, I didn't know that your, that your car was open and the groceries were unloaded, but I actually kind of had an idea that that maybe went down. I wondered about the groceries, which is sort of funny. I was wondering about your half and half spoiling. And, um, and so I said, I don't think that she would mind, be, if, if you can make it work, it, you're an hour away. I think that would be a beautiful thing to do because I don't know what this looks like. I don't know if she, she needs a pillow, a blanket. Um, maybe she needs you to go get her uh, some tooth, a toothbrush. But whatever it is, it, you know, somebody that she trusts that will be there. And, um, and so she said, all right, I'm going. And then we started communicating with you. And, and you also have been working really hard on your health. And 
um, we don't want any setbacks with that. One thing about caregiving is that I know you need to eat when you're under stress. I know you need to hydrate. And you said, I have an apple and a water. (laughs) And (laughs) And that was just because they were on the counter. And I knew Kate wasn't coming till the next day. Mm -hmm. So I thought in order to help you stay strong, um, that would be the best. And I packed a bag. I was ready to come for the whole, you know, seven days. I think I was still had the bag packed because I know that when you have a, a terminal illness, like Tom does with ALS, and then you come you get really sick that um, this may be a long haul and it may be a long haul with a terrible ending. And I wanted to get to you and be there to do whatever you needed. Take the dogs, um, support your daughter, drive people around, whatever it was. Well, well, it was amazing to know I had that support though. Um, And, you know, I, we ended up being discharged. I, I would, I welcomed Lisa, Lisa coming. But they were discharging us, so we were able to turn her back, um, which was, you know, was good because it was pointless for us to wait around for her to get there to get there when we knew that we were going to be going home. With all the flu that was going around, um, the ER doc and we agreed it was better to go home since he didn't have a fever. Um, but having all of that support was so important, and those are. Um, Hard, those were hard lessons for me to learn along the way, along my caregiving journey, um, the acceptance of help. That it doesn't mean you're weak. It means you're strong, really, to be able to say, I need some help, and to accept it and to ask for help and be able to receive the help gracefully. It's not, it's not easy to do because we like to be independent. You know? we, like, we like to be able to do the things that we've always done for ourselves, but there are times when we can't do that. And, th- and this was clearly one of those times that I could not handle all this by myself. I needed help. Yes, so and I, I'm glad you said that's a sign of strength. It really is. Weak people yeah. try to do everything on their own. They do, and then you end up getting hurt yourself. And there have been times in my life when I haven't had anybody, just, just like you, you know, we've talked about that before as caregivers. We've had times when there's been nobody. They don't understand the enormity of what our care recipients are going through. So therefore, what we're going through, the, the loneliness, the isolation. And we've closed those doors. We don't, we're not going back. We no. have help. We have people who care about us um, in our lives. We care about each other, you and I. And, and we have other friends that care about us. And sometimes even those that live um, on the opposite side of the country, you know, I called Fawn O'Neill. It was um, like 10 30, 11 o'clock our time, and she's on the West Coast. And I had an SOS moment, and I, I knew she'd be awake, you know. <laughs> I, knew, I knew I wouldn't be waking her up, you know. And, um, you know, I'm very cognizant of that. I don't want to just call somebody at two o'clock in the morning or something just, just because I'm having a moment, but, um, I knew I talked to her. And, um, so we, so, so we've built a network of people in our lives that are just not, they're more than a network. We care about each other. And that's, that's really important, um, on this caregiver journey to do that. It's good for your mental health. And so we, so I accessed that when I needed to, and I would, I would be there for any one of my friends as well. So with the sepsis journey, he didn't get a fever until the next day. I actually really didn't even have a thermometer in the house until that Saturday. The next day, I went and I got a thermometer. 
and I was taking his temperature. It was rising through the day and he got to a hundred point three actually. And then, um, just before I left, I took it again. He was at 101 and he was a very sick man. Um, we spent 12 hours in the emergency room until they admitted him. They did tests through the night. His white, his white count went from being really low to really high. It's like calling out the Marines when you have a big infection in your body. It's like, whoa, man, this is, we're going to attack whatever this is. And he was in an enormous amount of pain and um, not with it. I have a great photograph that I... Uh, Alter, a, adult with. fevered, altered mental state. Oh, yeah. He slept <laughs> about uh, 46 or 47 hours, sat between Saturday and Sunday. Um, then he had procedures, and I knew on Sunday... Um, I think the lowest moment was Sunday afternoon. We knew he was septic by then. Um, we just didn't know where. We didn't know where it was coming from. We didn't know the origination of the infection. And he was waiting to have a procedure. And the GI doc came to see him at bedside just before they brought him back. And he, he looked at Tom and he looked at me and he said, he is a very sick man. And then he said, I'm going to do what we, I'm going to, I'm going to get him in and we're going to see what's going on. And then I knew, I knew at that moment, I can't even really talk about it, but I thought he was going to die. Yeah. I and it, thought it was the last moments for us. Yeah. And it's important to, for everybody who's listening, you know, Tom, Tom pulled through and you pulled through and it was the, it was the time it was your worst case scenario. Yep. It was. And you wondered, you know, so I, so I, um, you know, you just, you just wondered, you know, where, like, where did all this come from? Yeah. I have a lot of thoughts and I'm um, probably going to write a piece about it um, that I, you know, some of the things I can't really go into right now. It's it's so raw. Yeah. Um, but he did come out of that, and the doctor uh, was he was fairly disappointed that he did he couldn't pinpoint what it was at that particular moment. And then he he was in critical care for two days. They he was going to go to ICU. They didn't have room, so they put him in. Um, and because oh. he didn't he ventilated, we we were able to have him in critical care. I got the Red Cross involved, so we got my son here for a week with his family, released from duty. My daughter was here. Our principal was wonderful. She's a second grade teacher. And so she, she saw the worst of it with her dad. Um, and then our son was able to stay for the whole week. So helpful. What they found out was that it was his gallbladder, you know, without going into all the sort of, you know. And it can be things. anything. Uh, mine was, mine was vi- started as a viral infection. Um, others are infections following surgery or an injury and others are infections because of uh, problems with your organs, you know? And so that's a, why so many people get sepsis. And it's also why so many people die from sepsis is because they don't always know where to look. And so they have to look everywhere. Yeah, they do. And so for Tom, his liver function was off the chart. He was, um, Billy Rubin count was exceptionally high. Um, and and his gallbladder was infected. So that's where his sepsis started was um, he had sludge in the gallbladder, probably had it for a long time. Men are known to have gallbladder problems for a long time before realizing it's the gallbladder. They just don't 
really acknowledge the discomfort that they're feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, so those was, bastards. Um, yeah. <laughs> supposed to complain about pain. So, so they, uh, the, the liver, his liver has also been adversely affected by an ALS medication that he has taken for a number of years. Um, so it was a combination for him, which just really made the complexity so deep for the medical staff. Um, his surgeons were unbelievable. They were truly wonderful. Um, they really wanted to make him better, and they did. So he, had, he didn't have surgery until, let's see, the whole thing started on Friday, and he didn't have surgery until the following Thursday. Mm. So it was long days, and he was on heavy-duty antibiotics, um, which were like a miracle for him. Yeah, antibiotics are what saved me. Um, I have an allergy to penicillin. As a child, I had severe reaction to it. Um, but they were able to do a cocktail of some antibiotics for me that worked. And then we initiated um, antibiotic screening so that in the future, we would know exactly what antibiotics I can and can't take and what the reaction will be. Because if you're allergic, but it's not a life-threatening allergy, they can still give it to you and then give you antihistamines or um, another agent that will prevent you from having the reaction. Because Mm -hmm. antibiotics, man, they save lives. They do, and they they absolutely saved his life. I'm certain of that. Um, and so now we're in, you know, this post septic life, and we're beginning to learn about it. And uh, I can see he's frail now. Yeah, um, he feels diminished. Like from the ALS has really been impacted by this, um, but he's pretty frail. He's emotionally frail too. Yeah, well, not something we're used to seeing in him. He's really, no. he's usually strong mentally. We, we've had a lot of conversations in the last few days about my sepsis and what I experienced. And um, I was very, I tried to be very honest with, I always am very honest with you, even though I know it might be hard to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't tell everybody around me how at the time how terribly sick I was. Um, it did make me have depression. My, my depression spiked a lot because I felt so weak and so terrible. Um, for a couple of days I was really out of it. And then I was just, uh, to you, you know, just like Tom, I was so frail. Um, I, I was, I couldn't control my bladder or bowel. That's how, how frail I was. My muscles had no energy, zero. Mm. And um, it frightened me to my core. And then the follow-up visits, you know, we, we talked about my lungs and keeping the air in, in my apartment clean. And I had to see a, a nutritionist came to my house and we talked about my diet and all these things had to, had to change. And I was so terribly tired. I couldn't. Uh, you know, I'm a speaker. I had miss speaking engagements, um, which was very disappointing for me. You know, I don't I don't like to miss speaking engagements, but um, of course, my my teammates helped with that, and it was amazing. But um, when I did go back to work, I I got exhausted walking from my car to my cubicle. Well, then you and I also talked at that time about your immune system and your frailty. Um, 
and the fact that when you speak, because you speak so personally, and people relate to the trauma and um, that that you had when your brother was uh, blown up in Iraq, and um, what your caregiving journey was like, that you had to have people not touch you, and that was hard, right? Because people they want to shake your hand, they want to hug you, they want to share their story, but you here you are dealing with your own, you know, sort of emotional fallout from your sepsis and your more weakened immune system. So you really needed to keep people at a distance. I'm so, I was so weak and my immune system was a disaster. My doctors were amazing. I go to the Mayo Clinic and they put an action plan into place to start building it back up. And they also uh, counseled me on how to keep myself from contracting something else because the truth is that really could have killed me. Um, uh, aside from my audiences who always want to hug me and shake my hand and it's so wonderful. And I love that part of the job. Um, I did, I had to wear, I wore a mask um, when I was traveling, even when I was at the grocery store, I used a lot of disinfectant um, and a lot of hand sanitizer. And I, people, when you're really, really sick and they see you, so if you've been gone from work for three weeks and people hear you're super sick, they want to hug you. They're human. They, they care about you and they want to give you that hug for themselves, for you, and you have to push them away. So I do have some advice for our listeners. If you, if someone in your life has been sick, give them an elbow bump, you know, Mm -hmm. rub elbows and, uh, and get, you know, ask them for a, a, a virtual high five and, and don't try to get close to them. You don't know what you're carrying. I have no idea where I got that horrible virus that made me so terribly ill, probably from an audience member which is sad we're just touching anything traveling um i'm so careful in airplanes now like i said i did i don't wear a mask anymore but but i might um if i travel a lot during cold and flu season i i have two in my bag at all times um i have worn them on airplanes people give you funny looks and i don't care those people are gonna feel terrible when they get sepsis (laughs) you know like Mm -hmm. so uh i have I have masks and I also have a little, little Lysol, little disinfectant that I carry. And I, I hit my hotel room. I hit my armrests and my tray table and my seatbelt, the seatbelt on an airplane they've done tests on germs and that's the dirtiest place. It's like a thousand times dirtier than the bathroom. So I, I wipe all that stuff and it looks weird and I don't care. And I, don't touch my face. Mm, that's definitely a good rule of thumb right there. That's like boot camp 101. We have, you know, kids in the military and we have a lot of listeners who are caregivers for veterans. And in that's what they t- tell you in boot camp. Don't touch your face. Mm-hmm. No, that's, so- a, that's a good one. And, you know, as we're, we're speaking about the uh, fallout of sepsis for you, you know, um, one third of sepsis survivors are rehospitalized within three months of the initial, the initial sepsis experience. I almost got there myself. I did get sick several times in the six months following my hospitalization. I, I didn't have to be readmitted, but I was, I was terribly ill. 
several times and that really fed my depression too. I think I just, I got to a point where I thought I'm never going to get past this and I had to make some lifestyle changes, but you know, I have been healthy for well over a year. Mm -hmm. Anything. And you and I spent some time together a couple of months after I had sepsis um, in Washington, D.C. Do you remember that? I do remember. And I remember the biggest uh, physical complaint you had at the time was how much your legs hurt and how difficult it was for you to sleep, which is exactly what Tom is having right now. He's getting up every two hours right now. It passes. It does pass. I'm not sure what causes that. If it's nerve pain, if you, if your marrow is <laughs> weak, I, I'm not exactly sure, but that's very common in sepsis survivors. And it's just something that you need folks to be a patient about. And mm-hmm. I did explain um, to everybody around me and I, and I want to tell our listeners um, there is a lot of good information on sepsis.org. But one thing that's crazy helpful is they have, templates for letters that you can give to your employer to a teacher that say um, you or your loved one has experienced a terrible illness and it explains a little bit about sepsis and a little bit about what you're going through and I wish I had used that Um, my boss my bosses were amazing and super accommodating and probably googled it and were like oh my gosh and constantly telling me to tell them if I was doing too much but um, you and I had to spend um, a week in Washington, D.C., and it it was all I could do to get through mm-hmm. the day. I do remember that, and I, I'm, I'm feeling already, um, you know, the caregiver aspect of it, I'm, I'm feeling a much heavier load than I have ever felt before, and I'm going to talk to my boss later today, um, and we're going to talk about how this is affecting my life. I don't really know that I have all the answers right now. I, I would say it's too new. His physical, Tom's physical therapist was here yesterday. And because he's, Tom is still on some pain medication and he's still healing from surgery. Right. So he wasn't just sick with sepsis. He then also had surgery and he still has ALS and he has diabetes. So he's, he's, uh, again, you know, I guess overused word, but you know, he's kind of frail right now. So I I don't know that we really know what all the fallout is for him regarding ALS and it's too soon to assess but as a caregiver myself I got sick I picked up you know I don't know if I really actually picked up a cold in the hospital to be honest I think I was worn down and I typically since I was a child when I'm worn down emotionally I I get sick but I don't think I get sick like a cold sick I think my body just breaks down and it's like fake like fake sickness like a like when we have fake heart attacks from anxiety yeah you had a fake illness from sepsis from caregiving yeah i don't think it was like a cold that i could like give to anybody but like you and i were going to podcast on sunday and i like got myself out of this haze of sleep and enough to text you and say i just can't do this right now (laughs) and i went back to sleep i pretty much slept the weekend away and and thankfully my yoga lady friends brought some meals over and I didn't have to worry about that and I had food delivered from public so I didn't have to worry about going out um so I'm not really sure where what I'm looking at and I don't know that I'm gonna have a good answer from my boss later 
know, it could well, be better my working days and, um, and that'll be okay. Or I, I can still do some of the projects that I have that I'm working on that I love. And I, I don't know. I think it's a day by day thing. What you're doing is such a good model for other caregivers. You're telling people what you're going through. You're being specific about how they can help. And you're allowing yourself to rest. Um, one of the things that we go through physically as a result of caregiving um, when we're running those worst case scenario movies in our mind while our loved one is getting x-rays or surgery or MRIs, um, we run all those those horrible movies in our mind about what might happen because we're preparing for that. But while we're doing that, our body is making cortisol and it's um, our breathing is getting shallower and tighter and heavier and faster. And we and we become ill from those things. So yeah. it's not surprising that you were super tired. I wouldn't be surprised if you had some joint pain and if you had some insomnia after you get through this really like your body is exhausted period. So listen to that and listen to your body and, and do what it's telling you to do. That's good. That's a good wrap up right there, I think, Jen. I mean, I think we did a really good job covering um, both of our experiences, you as a sepsis survivor and me really at the beginning of um, a new a new leg of my caregiver journey. With a, I want to encourage our listeners to visit sepsis.org if they have an interest in getting involved. We're going to share some graphics on our Facebook page for this caregiver life, but on sepsis.org, you can find a list of events that are going on everywhere from North Carolina to Indianapolis. Um, there are walks and golf outings and uh, various efforts to help uh, raise money for sepsis.org, which has increased advocacy and awareness for, for sepsis. And in the last 15 years, um, sepsis awareness has gone from, uh, from 12 to something like 60%. And I'd like it to be 100 because I think... 270,000 people a year deserve to, to survive sepsis just like I did. I agree. That's, that's a great way to wrap this up. We'd love to hear from our listeners if you've experienced uh, sepsis, either yourself as a sepsis survivor or as a caregiver. You can um, send us a message and um, we can we'll play them on the air if you'd like, or we could just read your messages out loud on our, on our next podcast. I I think that any one of the topics that we cover in this caregiver life is whether it's sepsis or uh, heart health or ALS, as we've done, or war wounds, as we, we have done um, and we will do again, TBIs, CTE, any one of those things, diabetes. Um, I think we can, we can always share a little bit from our previous episodes in the next episodes. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to support you. Um, while you and Tom have been going through this this horrible period and also for giving me the platform to share my story, um, recovering and surviving sepsis is not something that I have talked about. And I appreciate you giving, giving me a chance to share that. Well, I'm right back at you. We appreciate having you in our life and being there for us, even, even though, you know, we're not right next door, but, you know, just having you there was really wonderful support. I felt the love. And um, I'm glad that you had this platform to share this story. And, and actually, I'm sad that you had sepsis, but I benefited from you having had it. Yeah, I benefited from you supporting me through it. So our Mutual Admiration Society membership is renewed.
This continues till the next time. Bye, everybody. Bye.